So you hear me say that IUDs are 99% effective for birth control. They seem to be very close to that for emergency contraception. So it may be the question, why? Why are IUDs just so effective? It has been hypothesized that IUDs are like magic because they have a post-fertilization effect, meaning they don't just interfere with fertilization, but they interfere with implantation. And this theory makes patients whose religious or moral beliefs hold that life begins at fertilization hesitant or not wanting to use IUDs at all. And it's what has made lawmakers in conservative states threaten to ban IUDs right alongside abortion. So what I want to talk about is the evidence that we have why IUDs probably don't have a post-fertilization effect. So when the uterus is exposed to a foreign body, a sterile inflammatory reaction occurs, which is toxic to sperm and ova and impairs fertilization. Specifically, the production of cytotoxic peptides and activation of certain enzymes leads to inhibition of sperm motility, reduced sperm capacitation and survival, and sperm phagocytosis, just destroys them. These cytotoxic effects are supported by studies that looked at, well, could fertilization actually be happening? And what are our sperm really getting through? They're getting to the tubes. And so these studies have looked at the fallopian tubes of IUD users, which were flushed, and then the fluid was examined. Science can be really fun. And what they found is that there were no sperm and specifically no fertilized ova in the fallopian tubes which is really reassuring that on a microscopic level, we are not seeing any evidence of fertilization occurring. Additional studies of IUD users looked at HCG levels, meaning are we even seeing transient you know, implantation where beta HCG would be made and we are not seeing it. So altogether, it feels like it's the best evidence we have to date that IUDs are not acting after the fertilization level. I say probably because unless we have a camera up in there on thousands of women, we are never going to know for sure. But I find this data very supporting. And more importantly, there is no data to support the idea that it does have a post-fertilization effect. It's just a theory. So a little bit of bonus IUD coverage today. Um, we may have seen the headlines that Mirena has now been improved for pregnancy prevention to eight years of use. There was greater than 99% efficacy in years six through eight, meaning not only is it effective, but it's as effective as the first six years of use, which is where the first prior labeling had been. You may be thinking, okay, but we are starting to shift from Mirena here to Liletta. What's its approval? So currently Liletta is labeled for six years of use. The studies have been ongoing. The data is just not published yet that would support a label change, but it is the same dose of hormone. So I will tell you that the complex family planning planners among you are treating Mirena and Lalada the same, and we are counseling patients that it is okay to use until eight years. Obviously, there may be patients who are uncomfortable using a device beyond what the FDA has labeled, to which I say, great, no problem. We'll change it as soon as you want us to. Other patients whose bleeding patterns start to change in year six, seven, eight, may, even if the method is effective for contraception, it may not be effective for their life anymore, which would be another good reason to change. So staying in the EC realm, um, Plan B has gotten a lot of attention lately in Massachusetts because recent legislation has allowed for the sale of the levonorgestrel EC products in vending machines. I want to give a shout out to the Boston University undergraduates campus, who was, I think, the first in Massachusetts to get permission to do a vending machine in their student union. So Plan B is available on campus um, without having to access a provider or to go to a drugstore off campus, especially if you don't have a car or don't want to hop on the T, which is great. 
And increasing availability of these products is excellent for increasing access to them, but it is not a panacea. And it is certainly not a replacement for abortion access in places that abortion is being restricted. And so I wanted to sort of just highlight some key facts that patients need to know about. The first is that Plan B and the levonorgestrel products are more effective the closer they are taken to intercourse. And in fact, waiting even 12 hours after sex increases the odds of pregnancy by 50%. I try to tell patients who are going to use plan B to literally have it in your bathroom. So when you get up to pee after intercourse, as we advise to reduce UTI risk, take it easy then if you need it, meaning there's no reason to wait till the next morning or to wait later. Um, we also know that the longer you wait, the risk goes up. And by 120 hours, while there is still some efficacy for the plan B products, you have a five times increased risk of pregnancy compared to only waiting a day. So one of the reasons that plan B is so finicky and the window is so narrow is because it needs to be taken before the LH surge in the cycle. And if it's taken up to two days before the surge, the surge is usually delayed or suppressed completely. But as soon as the LH surge starts, so if you're taking EC really close to that, the surge may not be suppressed completely, which means ovulation may occur, which means pregnancy may occur. Now, we know that patients never know where they are in their cycle, right? Unless you're tracking your periods using fertility awareness methods of contraception, or you're trying to get pregnant, no one knows where they are in the month. This is why we always say, well, just take EC if you think you need it, because who knows where you are. Um, but biologically, there's a really narrow window in which um, the Plan B products can work. And for patients with a BMI that is elevated, the pregnancy risk doubles. In fact, we think that with a BMI over 26, Plan B really may not even be effective at all. And preliminary data suggests that doubling the dose, which also doubles the cost, does not appear to balance the effectiveness. It doesn't seem to work. So please don't tell patients to take two doses of Plan B, even if it's covered by insurance. So why is ulipristal acetate potentially better than Plan B for most patients? So as a quick reminder, ulipristal is an orally active selective progesterone receptor modulator. So it blocks the progesterone receptor in target tissues. And the first is that the efficacy range is that it's more effective than plan B on days four and five. Plan B sort of hits this cliff and the efficacy starts to drop and Ella remains effective throughout all five days. Now, why is this? Because it works after the LH surge has started. So if you administer Ella before the LH surge starts. Again, it's going to totally block follicular rupture, just like the levonorgestrel products do. But it also has the capacity to directly prevent ovulation by impairing the ovulatory response and actually controlling rupture of the follicle itself, which delays or inhibits ovarian functioning. So it has this longer window of time where ulipristal is effective. You'd be thinking, it's like one more day, right? One, maybe two more days than you see than the plan B. Maybe but every day may matter when a patient is desperately trying to prevent a pregnancy that they don't want. Um, Ella may also have effects on fallopian tube action. The data is a little unclear, but it seems to inhibit ciliary response in the fallopian tubes, meaning if sperm do make it through and if ovulation has occurred, it does seem to impact or slow down sperm getting to the egg, which is a good thing. You want, you want your products to work in as many ways as possible. The last is that the weight doesn't appear to be as effective by Ella, and it doesn't really lose effectiveness until BMI over 35. Again, at that point, you really want to be talking to your patients about the option of an IUD, um, but at least Ella has a larger window for our patient population that we know has high rates of overweight and obesity. <laughs>
So have Ella maybe top of mind. And for any patient who is not using a LARC device and hasn't been sterilized, offering advanced prescription of emergency contraception can be really, really effective. We talk about having it like Band-Aids and Tylenol. It's something that you buy in your and have in your medicine cabinet or bedside table or in your purse well before you actually have a need for it. So maybe think about this in the office and on postpartum today. Now I'm going to talk about spermicide which made me thinking, but Dr. White, you're talking about emergency contraception. So I want to bring up something that I learned while studying for the complex family planning board exam about what you might know, not know about spermicide. So all spermicides in the United States are one chemical, minoxidil 9. This is a surfactant that destroys sperm and leaves them immobile and inactive. There are multiple different forms of spermicides, which can be inserted up to an hour prior to intercourse. You have to really read the box carefully because each product has its own directions for use. So suppositories, films and tablets need to be inserted at least 10 minutes prior because they need to dissolve. They need the body warmth and a little bit of time to dissolve and spread. But gels and foams and creams, because they've sort of already dissolved, don't need that 10 minute wait time. So what else is special though about these? Gel, foam and cream spermicide can be used immediately after failure of another paracoidal contraceptive. So broken condom, a couple that's using withdrawal where we don't think the partner pulled out in time you actually can use this as postcoital contraception. We have no efficacy data on this. This has never been studied, partially because spermicides are just not widely respected within the family planning community. But I think this is another really critical option for patients who are not using hormonal methods, who really don't want to or can't, and are using barrier and coitally dependent methods. Plus they have calculated again, no real world data, but calculation that condoms plus spermicide have a pregnancy rate that rivals the birth control pills we talked about earlier in this talk. So using spermicide with condoms greatly boosts the effectiveness of both. So for patients who are using barrier methods, it may be really good to have a gel foam or cream spermicide on hand. Something to think about. Okay when to stop contraception. Another thing that is actually not scientifically new, but was new to me when studying, so I thought I would bring it to you. So obviously, when to stop using birth control if a person wants to achieve pregnancy, if they're no longer at risk of pregnancy, or they're not tolerating side effects, all good reasons to stop. But what age, and people, the older I get, the more my peer group, you know, has reached 50, like when can I actually stop using contraception? And to my answer, I say, it depends on what you are using. So for people who would like to stop using birth control as soon as they can, there are actual things we can do to figure this out. So for patients who are, let's say, having some menopausal symptoms, they're having some hot flashes, some dryness, and things that make them think, maybe even though right now I'm on contraception and I can't tell period-wise, I may be starting to go through the change. I may actually even be postmenopausal. If she's on a progestin-only pill, the implant, or leave an adjustable IUD, you can check an FSH once. If it is over 30, the recommendation is to use the method for one more year and then stop. If it is under 30, use the method for another year and then recheck the level and go from there. For Depo-Provera, FSH levels are not always suppressed, but if you could check the FSH on the day of an injection and repeat 13 weeks later prior to the next one, if both levels are above 30, you can stop. If they're not, would continue for another year and then recheck. For combined methods, recommendations are to stop them for six to eight weeks and then use a non-hormonal method as backup. If there's no menses during this time, you can check FSH twice, one to two months apart. If both of them are over 30, you can stop the method. 
for patients who say, I am not stopping my birth control. It's been working really well for me if I could get pregnant and I'm not menopausal. So for patients who want to continue use, check an FSH on day seven of the placebo week and do this twice, you know, like over two successive cycles. If both are over 30, you can stop. Now, false negatives may occur though with this method and some people need to be off for 14 days before they'll see that. And so not all patients will feel comfortable waiting that long. But if you have a patient who you've checked their FSH twice and they're not over 30, but they're in the high 20s, you may want to think about a couple of months later, trying it again, stopping for 14 days, seeing if we get you know full unsuppression of FSH and see what happens. And if all of this sounds like way too much work, you can just stop at age 55, which is simple, but there may be patients who really don't want to go that long. So it's nice to know that there are other techniques for being able to figure out when you can stop contraception. All right, so shifting gears now to some updates on abortion. The first is around ROGAM for induced and spontaneous abortion. So we know that RH negative patients, this is a little bit for the students, but also for the residents, that RH negative patients who are exposed to the RHD antigen may become sensitized, immunized to RH positive red blood cells. And production of RHD antibodies in subsequent pregnancies can cross the placenta and then destroy the RBCs of any RH positive fetus, leading to hemolytic disease of the newborn. And this process of sensitization is multifactorial. It's dependent on the volume of blood exposure, ABO compatibility, a bunch of other factors. But it is important to know that even prior to the discovery of RH immunoglobulin, only 9 to 10% of pregnancies in RH negative patients led to sensitization. So this mismatch between pregnant person and fetus alone wasn't enough to cause sensitization. Again, a lot of factors we don't understand. So hemolytic disease of the newborn can generally be avoided as giving RH immunoglobulin at 28 weeks gestation and again at delivery has decreased the rates of immunization from 10% to 0.2%, which is amazing. And so we know that administering Rogam later in pregnancy is recommended, but when you need to start is less clear because there's conclu conclusive evidence has never been actually determined about when you can start especially because these rates of immunization have not decreased further despite us flooding first-try patients with Rogam. So this has been a huge public health advancement, but the needle has not moved on it. I mean, 0.2% is pretty good, but with early Rogam advancement, we haven't seen any other changes. So what is the evidence? It is scant, my friends. There was a study done in 1972, which was the only early RCT before the widespread adoption of RH immunoglobulin. Women undergoing spontaneous abortion at eight to 24 weeks were randomized to receive RH immunoglobulin or placebo. 25 of the 29 patients who received placebo underwent curatage for treatment of incomplete abortion. None were sensitized by six months. Six subsequent RH positive pregnancies among these 25 people were all unaffected. There was another cohort study also conducted in these early days that looked at 32 RH negative patients who had an RH positive live birth after one prior miscarriage. The idea being at that prior miscarriage, they could have gotten sensitized at that point and now had this mismatch with a future pregnancy. There was one case of sensitization in a patient who had a curatage for an incomplete AB at 16 weeks. A Cochrane review, looking at all the evidence that they considered to be high quality, only actually even included the first study. And they said that the data are insufficient to make a recommendation on when we should start giving Rogam. And they deferred to the guidelines of each country 
which are incredibly different around the world. So referencing existing literature, a recent study by a family planning fellow, this was Dr. Horvath's fellowship project, calculated that 250 fetal RBCs per 10 million adult RBCs was a really super conservative threshold of how many fetal RBCs were necessary to cause maternal sensitization. And this concentration is much lower than what would be detectable by Clara Becky test, which is the traditional technique for detecting fetal red blood cells in maternal circulation. Their lower limit of detection on KB is 4,000. And Sarah is saying you only need 250 for sensitization to occur. So she used flow cytometry, which is more sensitive and more specific with lower inter-observer variability than a KB test. And they use this to analyze serum samples for 37 patients before and after uterine aspiration up to 12 weeks. So basically throughout the first trimester. And this is her graph that showed the level for KB detection, like what the threshold would be, where her sensitization threshold was and where all the fetal RBC levels were. So the level of fetal RBCs in the pregnant person circulation did not cross the threshold in any samples. In fact, it wasn't even close. The highest level was around 100, which was less than half of what you would need, and most were much smaller. So she concluded that it's possible that we don't need to be giving Rogam as early in pregnancy as we do. Another study responding to the fact that there are Rogam shortages around the world, plus there's the cost, plus it is a human blood product, a lot of patients don't want it, perhaps a smaller dose than the standard dose, which is 300 milligrams, might be sufficient. If there's not a lot of crossage through the placenta, maybe we actually don't need to give so much Rogam, but the patients we give it to. So this is a study out of Davis that did KB testing to determine the quantity of fetal maternal hemorrhage among 300 patients undergoing DNE between 15 and 24 weeks. They looked at characteristics that could possibly affect this interchange, and there were no relationships with the gestational age of the pregnancy, estimated blood loss, prior pregnancy history, blood type, RH status, fetal anomaly, none of this. And so what they found is that 12 patients actually had evidence of pre-procedure fetal maternal hemorrhage. So well before anyone would have given Rogam. None of the 24 patients less than 16 weeks had a hemorrhage greater than five milliliters. And none of the 64 patients less than 18 weeks had a hemorrhage greater than 10 milliliters. So none would need a dose higher than 100 milligrams of Rogam, which is one third the current dose we get. That's not a dose that's actually available in the United States. We do have 50 milligram, which is like the mini Rogam dose. So we could actually be giving two of those. The remaining patients who showed hemorrhage all were above 18 weeks gestation and should get the 300 milligram dose. The last recent study, also the family planning world, used flow cytometry to look at fetal RBCs both before a procedure and after, what they considered spontaneous, meaning before a procedure had even happened, and provoked. So they looked at patients undergoing DNC or DNE between 16 and 22 weeks. The mean age was 17 weeks. These were mostly second trimester patients. And what they found because again, flow cytometry, much more sensitive than a KB test, 69% of patients had fetal RBCs already in their circulation before we had done anything, including dilation or curatage. So well before when we start giving Rogam, there's already transfer. What was interesting is that most patients who had fetal RBCs in the parental circulation post-procedure also already had them pre. There were only 14% of patients who de novo had fetal red blood cells in their circulation. Most people just had it throughout. And it's not like people are being sensitized all over the place, right? We talked before, we've introduced Rogam in the population. 
sensitizations, 0.2%. We have all these patients who could be getting sensitized early who aren't, which is really interesting. So you look at the recent evidence, we know that forgoing Rogam before 12 weeks may not increase the risk of antibody development. That fetal exposure during aspiration abortion is well below the threshold. Majority of patients have detectable fetal RBCs and before we touch them. So what is the clinical utility of Rogam in early pregnancy? So looking at all this evidence, the Society of Family Planning has changed their recommendations. So they wanna be more inconsistent with international organizations who all for a long time now have not been giving Rogam in early pregnancy and looking at the current availability of evidence. And so what they say is, if the fetus is reasonably certain to be RH negative, don't worry about it. And RH testing administration are not recommended, not just like you don't need, to, like not recommended for patients undergoing spontaneous or medication or aspiration procedures. So that's miscarriage or induced abortion. For patients under 12 weeks, although not recommended, emphasis mine, you could consider testing in Rogam. So if patients are, are reading about this and they feel like kind of the, but I want it anyway, with a shared decision-making model, you can give it, but it's actually not recommended based on where the data is. Um, so similarly, patients may decline Rogam at any time. You just wanna document the reasons. When it's before 12 weeks, we should be using a 50 microgram dose, like the small dose. Um, a 100 milligram dose is fine for 12 to 18 weeks, and then sort of our standard 300 microgram dose after that. So BMC's recommendations are changing. So you'll hear from Dr. Woodhams and Dr. Cannon in the weeks to come once the policies are in effect, and it will be in effect not just for Beacon, but for actually for the whole hospital.